0: Hello everyone. I am thrilled, privileged, and honored to have with me uh, chatting uh, Mr. Mike Coward, uh, veteran broadcaster, journalist, author, uh, and, uh, uh, and somebody who loves uh, a city that I trace my roots to, Chennai. Uh, welcome to this chat, uh, Mike. Uh, hope you're doing well.
1: Rish, nice to be with you. Always nice to have a, a um, Chennai connection. <laughs>
0: Why? What is it about Chennai that you love so much?
1: Oh, I don't know. I I suppose it professionally, it takes you back, of course, to the extraordinary semi-final of the World Cup in in '87, um, and of course, not to mention the tied Test the year before. I mean, I suppose professionally, two of the most remarkable and thrilling moments in my career uh, were at the Chidambaram Stadium. So obviously, a very special uh, place there. But I've got close friends there, uh, Ramaswamy Mohan particularly, of course, well known to many of your viewers in the world of cricket. Um, so, uh, and I lived there. I lived south of uh, Chennai, on the uh, Palipuram Road, for a while uh, back in or oh, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, when I was writing *Cricket Beyond the Bazaar*, a book about Australian cricket on the uh, Indian subcontinent. So. I know the area reasonably well, although when I went back two or three years ago when working for the Bradman Museum and International Cricket Hall of Fame, I was staggered by the changes south of uh, Chennai on the the beachfront there. But yeah, so no, I've got good memories, very good memories.
0: So uh, uh, am I right in saying this is your 57th year as an active cricket media person?
1: Well, I'm holding on gamely. (laughs) In fact, I was only speaking to Ian Chappell earlier today on other matters. You will have noticed that one of his players from the 1972 team, Graham Watson, passed away at the weekend at the age of 75. A a fine all-rounder, Graham Beetle Watson, could have played more test cricket than he did. And uh, the 72 Tour of England was my first. I was working in London for Australian Associated Press and uh, had the opportunity to cover that 72 Tour. So, that was my start. So, it, um, yes, it's a long time now, Chandresh.
0: And I was just looking... Uh, you've done Wimbledon in 70 and 71, French Open in 70 and 71, Johnny Femekin's world title fight in Rome, uh, the Eisenhower Cup in Madrid, FA Cup finals, Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games in Munich, uh, and, of course, the Ashes in 72. So those early years in the 70s, was that the best time to be a sports journalist?
1: It was a wonderful time to be a sports journalist, certainly. Um, I, in fact, in London was uh, working in the Australian Associated Press Bureau. Um, And of course, I look back with great affection. I think the best training a journalist can have in certainly in that period, was afternoon newspapers, which, of course, most of your viewers wouldn't um, understand that such a thing existed, Um, but afternoon newspapers and agency work. And that was one of the sadnesses this year that Australian Associated Press, like so many other agencies around the world, is folding this year. Um, It's a terrific training ground, and I was very fortunate to work for those three years, 70, 71 and 72, Um, in London for AAP and that's why I got so many opportunities uh, to cover so many rich sporting events. So I I was very fortunate.
0: You've seen different eras of Australian cricket and uh, cricket captains. Uh, uh, What made you do something uh, or or write a book on the Chapel years of the 70s? Uh, What was particularly uh, of interest to you from those uh, years that Ian Chapel was captain and uh, and also Greg Chapel in the 70s, the 70s era of Australian cricket.
1: Well, I, it, this was the, the start of one of the great revolutions, of course. Um, it was a period, the Australian team in the late 60s was humiliated um, by Bill Laurie, as you would remember or have read, uh, being such a young man, um, in um, South Africa. Um, and there was a time of great change. Um, when um, Chappell took over in 70, from um from Bill Laurie. Um, Chappell was vice-captain in um, South Africa, and there's a lot of tension in the team. I mean, it was a great South African team, there's no doubt about that, but Australian cricket really was in, in dire straits at that point. Chappell took over, and of course, an imaginative, aggressive, exciting leader, and um, that... Uh, everybody of a certain age i think was captured or yes captivated i should say by that period and of course ultimately that led to the world series cricket revolution of which chapel and lily and rod marsh of course were the key figures in it Um, and so it it was a period of tumult of excitement remarkable cricket uh, a lot of political tension well, really, Chandresh, the game has been in tumult ever since, really. Since the 70s, right through and, and including in India as well. Um, so, it was a, a very significant time in the evolution of the game and an exciting time to write about and to commentate about.
0: And you mentioned uh, about the Packer uh, series. Uh, did you ever feel that we could uh, probably have uh, night cricket and? Uh, uh cricket with black side screen and coloured clothing becoming the norm rather than the exception when it started in the late 70s? Well,
1: we were all staggered, I think, by the the breadth of the thinking. Um, I mean, it basically came from pay disputes. I mean, the players were being... It it was a matter of the masters and the serfs, And I mean, you've seen it often enough with the BCCI over the years. The masters were the administrators, the serfs were the players. And it, it, was, it came to a critical point, and there's a, a famous moment in the, um, the tie Test celebration of 1977 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, won by the, exactly the same margin, of course, astro- astonishing that, by Australia over England. And Rod Marsh was keeping, and I think he said to it was either to, to one of the chapels, if he looked around at the crowd and he thought, well, the gate takings are going to be very, very substantial here. And we're getting paid an absolute pittance. It's not good enough. And um, sort of the restlessness had been there for a while, but it came to a head in, uh, at that time. And amazingly, um, many of the signings for World Series cricket, not a lot of people know this, but it's an ast- a staggering fact that uh, many of the signings for, to become part and parcel of the World Series cricket movement were made during the centenary tests in a clandestine way in the dressing room during the Centenary Test, the ultimate celebration of the traditional game. Yet the Rebels were thinking clearly then that uh, will this be our last uh, appearance in the traditional game because we uh, we are going to move to World Series cricket. So it really was a remarkable time.
0: And then you must have also seen the uh, the, the years when Greg Chappell and Kim Hughes sort of alternated as captains uh, I've been fascinated. I, I was obviously just born at the time, but I've been watching a lot of the matches and saw a couple of interviews of Kim Hughes and you being an uh, active journalist at the time. will would be in a better position to tell what was really happening at the time because certain tours, uh, Kim Hughes was the captain, certain tours, Greg Chappell was the captain. I've been speaking to our common friend Clinton as well about it. And I've been also fascinated about those four or five years that uh, Greg Chappell and uh, Kim Hughes were uh, uh, oh, can you tell us something about those years?
1: Yes, it was a remarkable time. It was a divisive time, very divisive time. Um, very much seen as the golden boy. The golden boy, he was the pure amateur. I mean, he was a wonderful player. He really was a wonderful player. And played a couple of absolutely astonishing in the, uh, innings against the great West Indies teams. Um, there's a lot of antipathy. After the, 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 the traditional side uh, came to and the World Series players came together, there was a lot of antipathy. And th- there's no doubt that history shows that the Western Australians, particularly Lillian Marsh, um, clashed repeatedly with Hughes. Um, Hughes, um, was the golden boy, I don't think that the old-time professionals like Lillian Marsh appreciated that he was considered to be the golden boy. Um, and didn't believe that he should um, have the leadership. Um, I mean, that was the critical thing. In Pakistan in 1982, um, the vote for the leadership was split, um, and it should have gone to marsh. But the sort of historical reluctance of, uh, of any cricket authority to appoint a wicketkeeper captain, how things have changed now <laughs> when you think of Tim Payne rescuing the Australians in recent times, um, but um, they didn't want Marsh. Uh, Hughes got the job, and that was a disastrous tour, absolutely disastrous. Uh, they lost all but one of the test matches, and the last test match was rioted off. Um, they lost all the one dayers, and um, the credibility of the Australian team uh, and Australian cricket plummeted. And um, so then became this um, the further exchange of um, what we'll say the conditional availability and conditional professionalism of uh, Greg Chappell. Um, He made himself available occasionally and there was a feeling that for all his greatness as a player that the administration should have been a lot stronger with him, allowing him to pick and choose his tours really did destabilise Australian cricket uh, to a large degree at that time.
0: Were you at that press conference when... uh... Kim Hughes cried and uh, announced his resignation as captain. And was he? Uh, I've been reading a lot, and was he hounded out of the job because uh, that series against West Indies and most cricket against West Indies in that era, as David Gar and the other English captains, or even the Indian Pakistani captains, will uh, just uh, verify, was a difficult choice. Was he unjust? Was he unjustifiably hounded out of the job at that time? Yeah,
1: good question. Um, I don't think he was emotionally strong enough for the job. Uh, I think it was a fundamental error um, in appointing him in the first place. Um, It was because of this uncertainty and the confusion as the two sides came together. Um, There was a tremendous amount of tension and uneasiness there, personality conflict. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I don't think he was strong enough for the job. Um, too many of his players didn't think he was strategically or tactically smart enough for the job. Uh, so, if you don't have the wholehearted support, um, there's, there's always going to be friction. Um, whether he was hounded out of the job is uh, is problematic. Had he been stronger, he might have resisted it. It was, I mean, in fairness to him, the programming made it nigh impossible. I mean, they had the five tests in the uh, the West Indies in 84, then back for five tests here. So, I mean, anybody like David Gower, as you mentioned, to have to play 10 consecutive tests against such a ruthlessly competitive and brilliant side as that West Indies side, it was going to bring you to your knees. Um, he was brought to his knees. Um, Alan Border, who was his deputy, was incredibly... Distressed by it all, he was very close to Hughes, um, and uh, for a while it, it, there was even doubt whether Border uh, would take over from him. Um, and that took a long time for the authorities of the day to convince um, Border that it, uh, that he had the capacity to replace Hughes. But Border had been so distressed by what he saw, the treat what he considered to be the poor treatment. Of, uh, of Hughes, that he was reluctant to take the job initially. So it was a tumultuous time. Uh,
0: and then starts a period when uh, you report from 1984 to 89 on every possible cricket match that Australia played. And uh, looking at that particular era, uh, if it was an English captain, Alan Border would probably have lost his job uh, for losing test matches or losing series. What made the Australian selectors or the powers that be of that day to hold on to Alan Border Because it took three years for him to win a Test Series. Obviously, won the 87 World Cup. Uh, but what made the Australian authorities stick to him and not sort of be fickle-minded like the English were?
1: <laughs> yes, well, <clears throat> we've always invested very heavily, as you know, in the Australian captain to be the best player in the team. Um, not necessarily the best leader. Uh, that's an issue that's, uh, c- of course, come to the head recently. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, there was no doubt that Border was the finest player in the team. Um, absolutely no doubt. In fact, I think he emerged eventually as one of the great captains. Um, I think you can argue in that you could link him. If you're looking for the sort of the holy trinity of Australian cricket, you could go Bradman, uh, you could go um, Benno, and then you could go border. Um, I think of him that highly. We've got to be frank that at that period, there was no one else really who could do the job. We saw that the, the issues surrounding uh, Graham Yallop, um, who was a very fine batsman but just didn't have the the mental strength or strategic strength to to do the job. Um, Border was sort of earmarked, um, but the the people who made the decision knew that they would have to be patient, very patient. Um, Laurie Saul, a former Western Australian opening batsman um, and a chairman of selectors and a chairman of the board at one stage, is a marvellous man uh, and a school teacher. Uh, and a headmaster professionally, and his judgment, and he had John Benno, Richie 's brother, John Benno, another fine player, um, and they took a decision that they had to invest in the future and invest under border. So they decided on Boone, they decided on McDermott, particularly those two, um, and that they would stick with those two, and that they would stick with border come hill or high water, and that's what they did. And eventually, after a lot of pain and a lot of anguish, and just the occasional excitement um, at uh, Calcutta in 87, um, and Chennai in 86, um, they were rewarded by that astonishing uh, achievement in England in 1989 under uh, Laurie Saul's management. So that, that was a, a, a lovely coming together of uh, philosophy and policy um, and courage by a group of men and, and uh, you know, and it, was, it, it um, came to fulfilment in such a dramatic way.
0: And how big a role did Bob Simpson play in your, in your view?
1: This is a, a very complex question, Chandresh, and an interesting one. Um, Simpson is one of the great educators, one of the great teachers. Um, but he's not one of the world's great communicators. Uh, He's the most, I think I could say, the most political animal that I ever encountered in cricket. And it it was those issues of politics and personalities that counted against him. Um, He was a wonderful player. uh, Probably the best slips catcher of all time. Um, He was a courageous opening batsman. And a very useful leg spinner, an excellent coach. I mean, up until, you know, quite recent years, with uh, he, he oversaw Simon Cattage's revival as a test player. Um, so, he always did polarize um, Simpson because of the political bent and the personality bent. And um, so, that's why there was always that division. But you... He has to have. I mean, he was tremendous for Border. Border was still looking for confidence. I mean, I can remember clearly now in Dunedin in 1986 in New Zealand with Border refusing to come out for a press conference um, and David Boone, you know, who was quite an introspective man, having to come out and fill for him as a press conference. And everybody wondered, you know, what uh, was Border doing? And Border had had enough. He said, unless he got a unconditional commitment from all his players, he refused to lead. He was so angered by the indifference, the lack of professionalism, um, and the lack of dedication. And so between them, um, Simpson and Border re-educated the Australian team. And um, I give particular credit to um, to border and also to his successor Mark Taylor and then on to Steve War particularly with the attitude to the Indian subcontinent for years the Australians ate the English attitude uh, towards the subcontinent full of complaining and if the behaviour wasn't racist it was often culturally elitist and utterly unacceptable and it took um, Simpson Border Taylor and War over that period to re-educate the Australian players and indeed re-educate Australian cricket. And, of course, there's been great benefits uh, for all concerned since. And it's a great relief for a lot of us who were observing at that time uh, that they achieved that.
0: Uh, you're li- leading on to the next question uh, very nicely. Your book on uh, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar, uh, which talks about Australian cricket in the Indian subcontinent, Why were there so few tours in 69-70, 79-80, and then 86, and then straight away 96 for the test matches? And looking in retrospect, I I somehow feel that, you know, the teams that went to Sharjah as well were second string sides because uh, some some tours, border was not around. Was there a feeling that, you know, those kind of one-day tournaments or those kind of series are not that important? Why was there so, so much... Uh, gap, there, there, there was so much gap between tours to India spe- specifically and why uh, Why were there so many second string sides touring the subcontinent or say the Gulf?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know so much about second string sides, um, uh, I mean, you've got to remember that there was a paucity of players, post World Series cricket, um, there was a paucity of players. Um, <clears throat> When when you consider that um, you know when world series cricket was being played in the late 70s, there were they had to there was a, a national side what we called the, the the test side the pure side, and of course the rebel side and that happened in South Africa as well. Um, there were, Kim Hughes called it the pure side or the uh, you know, and his critics would call it uh, the A side and so it went. So, and the Sheffield Shield competition was trying to prosper as well. While well, you had a test side going around, you had a, a rebel side in South Africa. So obviously the stocks were denuded quite dramatically. Um, just not having the population base or the cricket population base, of course, to uh, to be able to justify uh, so many elite cricketers. And so the standards fell away very dramatically. In terms of why I think the point I made earlier about the attitude towards India, <clears throat> it was unacceptable. I think there was an element of, um, of uh, culturally elitist view um, that um, India was just over there, out of sight, out of mind. Um, same with Pakistan and Sri Lanka, uh, although Sri Lanka, of course, the contact began to intensify or well, started really officially in the, uh, in the early 80s. But um, it was it was a difficult time. It was Australian cricket, Chandresh, for a long time was very very unworldly. Uh, it's interesting. I've just completed a book on Frank Tarrant, um, who managed the first Australian side, the uno- unofficial side, to India in 1935-36 under the patronage of um, of the Maharaja of Patiala, um, and both he. Uh, he encountered this sort of indifferent attitude to India even then in the 1930s. Um, And so I think it prevailed really right up for nearly 50 years after that. And it wasn't until, as I said earlier, Border and Company changed the view. Uh, And there perhaps wasn't the same level of... um, I always think it's interesting with um, uh, Patowdy talked about how passive the Indian cricketer was at his period and how he had to harden them up in so many ways. And I think it probably also extended to the Indian administration and perhaps the Indian administration wasn't as proactive as it could have been in trying to get contact with Australia in that period. It's hard to know uh, how to apportion blame if blame needs to be apportioned. Uh, It's just a pity that there was such a a long dry period between two, which are two, two now Of the most exciting countries in world cricket,
0: you've you've seen the difficult part in the uh, in the early 80s and mid 80s on the border, but then you saw a very dominant era of Australia, starting with uh, uh, Mark Taylor taking over as captain, then Steve Waugh, and obviously it went to a different level under uh, Ricky Ponting. Were those years the most dominant that you saw from say 94 to till uh, 2011 when? uh, Ricky Ponting was the captain of uh, Australia?
1: Yes, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it was an astonishing side. I mean, that side that uh, particularly in the early 2000s under Steve Waugh... Um, you know, I mean, but when you look at the number of great players, I mean, to think that you had a, a, a McGrath, that you had a Gilchrist, you had a Shane Waugh and you had a Steve Waugh. Um, I mean, you think of that uh, tour to India in 2001, um, and um, you know the the, um, the the achievements on both sides. Of course, I mean, uh, I mean the Indian side, the uh, Dravid and Laxman, of course, in uh, in Calcutta. I mean, who will ever forget that? I mean, that, that was some of the greatest cricket that we'll ever see. Um, and the Border Trophy. I mean, it's very significant that it's now called the Border Trophy. It wasn't the case when it began in 1996. <clears throat> There was, um, well, there was a, you know, and, and so I think that's been a great initiative, that recognition in such a grand way um, of uh, these two great players. And yes, there's no doubt this, it was a fantastic period in Australian cricket. But um, when you look at the quality of the players, I mean, it, they were as intimidating, unquestionably as intimidating to the rest of the cricket world as the, those great Western, West Indies teams under Clive Lloyd were throughout that extraordinary period.
0: And would you say of all of them was Mark Taylor the most cerebral captain because uh, he had a lot of young players who had not become world world beaters like they were under Steve Waugh, Ricky Ponting. So he had a tougher job, uh, or he was carry, uh, uh, taking over the baton from uh, Alan Border. So would that? Would you say he was the most cerebral captain of all of them?
1: Uh, probably, a brilliant captain, a brilliant leader. <clears throat> um, you know, a captain and a leader can be two different things, as you know. a Captain can be strategically and tactically very accomplished. A leader is a true leader of men. It got very difficult for, um, for Taylor. His form was so bad in South Africa. In um, 94, at the end of Border's career, there was a lot of speculation of what was going to happen with the leadership. Um, and he was under enormous pressure. Uh, which he, of course, eventually fought through. Um, in '95, particularly in uh, in England, he was outstanding. But it was a very painful time um, for him. But he certainly emerged um, as a great leader. And of course, he uh, subsequently has gone on to serve Australian cricket as a uh, uh, as an administrator on on the board as a director of Cricket Australia. Um, yes, I think you know when people talk and. Border was an inspiration to him. I mean, uh, in personality, incredibly different men, but um, Border was very much an inspiration to him. Um, and so, these standards—the standards that were put in place by Border—were uh, taken. Every successor took it one step further. Taylor, in terms of um, of the education; uh, Steve War, in terms of the nearly the mysticism of the game. Um, of, um, with the baggy green cap and how that became such a powerful symbol, um, and how the players responded to that. And not all as enthusiastically as war, of course. I mean, you'll all know Shane Warne's indifference to it, but even he towed the line um, when Steve War said it's to be worn in the first session of a test match. Um, and so, and, and then the numbering of the caps and all of those things which other countries and other captains have followed. So it's been handed down the line, uh, and it's a lot of it was born by the vision of the nearly an accidental captain in Alan Border. Uh, when you think the length of time that he and uh, Clive Lloyd, in particular, served as captains, is truly remarkable. To have that capacity, physically, mentally, and emotionally, to lead with such distinction for such a length of time is truly remarkable.
0: And uh, in recent years, we've had. Michael Clarke, and then Steve Smith, and now Tim Payne as Australia's test captain. In Tim Payne, has Australia gone away from from its regular or its uh, well-founded theory of handing the captaincy to their best player? Do you you see that as a change and shift in policy?
1: Very much so. I think think circumstances drove it um, because they gave it to Steve Smith because he was the best player, and there's no doubt about that. But, I mean, you have to ask the question whether he had the emotional maturity to do the job. And the evidence would suggest that he didn't because he didn't have the strength uh, to tell uh, Warner and company that what they were doing was an absolute outrage. They didn't understand, and I don't think Smith fully understood at that point in Cape Town what they were doing. Now, is that just a, a lack of education, an abuse of power, or what? I don't believe he should get the job again uh, because I think he it was such a, a grave uh, error. Uh, and it wasn't as though that he himself did something wrong. What he did that was so wrong was he didn't have the strength or the courage to say, don't do it. And it was as simple as that. And if a captain hasn't got the strength and the courage to say to... Uh, an errant teammate who is doing something that is clearly illegal, unacceptable and unethical, uh, don't do it. Well, you know, I don't think he deserves to get the, the leadership back. He's a very, very fine cricketer. No one disputes that, how, however uh, unconventional that he might be. Um, but um, I said only recently to, uh, to, um, to some of the uh, functions during the summer actually, to the um, heavies at Cricket Australia, how fortunate that they were that they had men of the calibre of um, Justin Langer and Tim Payne on call at a time of such crisis. Um, And they were very, very fortunate indeed because uh, what Langer and Payne have done between them uh, has been exceptional in a very short space of time. Uh, They've rebuilt um, the, the, not right not entirely through the cricket community, but generally they have rebuilt the faith and respect in the country towards this uh, towards this team um, and towards australian cricket Chan josh i don 't think a lot of people overseas would have understood um, that the the let 's shall we say the more senior followers of the game, the older demographic the the level of their disillusionment with the Australian team up. To, leading up to Cape Town and then following Cape Town was extraordinary. And it's gonna still gonna take time uh, before the, the nation collectively um, embraces Australian cricket again. It was that the hurt was that deep. It was incredibly deep the hurt.
0: In all these years, what's been the best cricketing moment that you have reported on or called on uh, in in so many years that you've seen? Ashes, World Cup wins, wins everywhere, uh, win in India in 2004. What's been the best moment that you've reported? Oh, I,
1: I, I, I can't get away from Chidambaram Stadium, really. I mean, to, to be, there's only been two tie test matches. Uh, Simpson, you mentioned earlier, of course, was involved in both, which is extraordinary, one as a player and one as the coach. I think that was... The, Professionally, the most demanding moment of our lives, of course, as you can imagine, in that unair conditioned um, uh, press box at Chittim Barham, in that high heat and humidity with the, the breezes of the uh, Bay of Bengal drifting across the Buckingham Canal, causing plenty of challenges for everybody. Um, but the level of tension, I mean, some of the things that happened on that final day, um, the The indiscipline on both sides, the drama, the tension, it was just something to behold. Dean Jones's double hundred, uh, Kapil Dev's hundred, um, uh, David Boone's hundred, uh, Gavaska's second innings. I can see him now down on one knee, square driving Craig McDermott. I mean, you couldn't see anything more beautiful. Um, I mean, it was just an astonishing test match. Professionally, it was just a privilege to be there. Um, I don't think um, I'll ever sort of. Certainly the following year, 87, you know, as they were hoisting war onto Dean Jones um, and Craig McDermott's shoulders after winning the World Cup, that was emotional for sure. Um, but, you know, as exciting as the one day game can be, there's nothing like a pure moment in the pure game. And that's what the tie test offered.
0: Why has it been so underrated over the years?
1: Oh, one of the problems, of course, was the very, there wasn't a widespread media coverage. Um, television didn't cover it in Australia. Um, the ABC radio didn't cover it, will you believe? I, I sent reports back into the ABC newsroom every night, uh, but nobody was sent from the ABC. Uh, the same in 1987 um, for the World Cup, would you believe? I sent reports back into the newsroom for all the games except for the final. Um, they took uh, the ABC took the BBC um, uh, uh, coverage of the final, um, and, and Channel Nine. I mean, unbelievably, um, that uh, took the first innings, but not the second innings. So nobody saw Australia winning it live either. The World Cup in '87. So that had a lot to do with it. Um, and that's one of the real sadnesses. Fortunately, there's been some good documentaries um, made uh, subsequently, both in India and in Australia. Um, there's occasional reunions of the of the Thai Test teams, which is important. So I think now there's been books that have been written. Um, but yes, you're right. Uh, at a time when um, the game was getting tremendous publicity, um, media publicity was increasing, um, in eighty six the uh, tie Test missed out and that's a great tragedy because it was one of the great matches ever played.
0: I, I know you have to go, so I'll just ask you the last couple of questions. Uh, uh, you've you've uh, received the uh, Australian Sports Commission Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. You got, the member, you, you got awarded the Member of the Order of Australia. Uh, what do all these accolades mean to you uh, after all these years?
1: Um, I think Chandras, what that really means is that um, I like to think Gideon Haig said when I got the uh, the, the awards the, uh, the australia all of the Order of Australia award he said it 's really a gesture a, a credit to you, but also a credit to the uh, industry recognition for the industry, and I like to think of it that way that um, Sports writing, at, historically, at times, has been treated with indifference, as you know, um, um, and I think it was a, a a nod to the value of sports writing in the community. I'd like to think that. I'm very proud. Obviously, I'm very proud to. You don't t- do anything for recognition like that. You know, you work hard because you believe in the game, you love the game, um, and you want to celebrate the game. And if it's brought joy and pleasure to a lot of people. That gives me
0: even greater satisfaction. Uh, You you spoke about the book that you're writing, you've just written, or just in the process of finishing uh, on Frank Tarrant. Uh, I I, I read a bit about him, and it's fascinating that he played in the Bombay Quadrangular, and that was a particularly uh, interesting time for India because it was during the British era in India, and uh, that tournament had a lot of uh, communal. Uh, angle as well to it, uh, religious angle to it as well. Uh, would we be reading more about that and also about the personality that he was? Um,
1: yes, not so much about the. Um, I've steered clear of the of the politics of the day, really, uh, because nothing's been written about it. Might be an opportunity to you know for someone else or for um, Ramachandra Guha or someone to explore it through that um but no because nothing had been written of substance about tarrant i've tried just to develop the story about him it's a slender but i hope significant um biography uh, of him i mean he was a remarkable all-rounder for victoria and for middlesex um and he he loved india and of course it's uh, in in every way and he had an entree to the royal houses i think mainly through his uh, relationship with uh, Ranja Sinji when Ranja Sinji was at Sussex and Tarrant was at Middlesex. I mean, people forget that Tarrant did the double for Middlesex for seven consecutive years to the, to the First World War. Um, and one, one year scored over 2,000 runs. And in his last year at the age of 33, uh, scored 1, 16, 1,700 runs and probably would have got 2,000 again. Um, at 33-34, but the the season was curtailed because of the outbreak of war. So he was a remarkable cricketer. Um, What I'm just trying to do is bring him to life. uh, He's never had the recognition that he should have, uh, particularly because in India as well as in Australia, um, you can argue that he is the unknown patriarch of Indo-Australian cricket because it was he, through Patiala and the Australian Cricket Board, uh, that set up the first tour in 35-36. Um, in and look what that has led to. Uh, the relationship between India and Australia, um, the Bordegavaska Trophy, and some of the richest and most remarkable cricket that we've seen. And uh, it will captivate cricket crowds and cricket enthusiasts, um, you know, f- for years and years to come. So I'd like to, in fact, I'd even like to see a, a, a Tarrant medal struck uh, for the outstanding player on each side during a border gavaska series uh, to recognise the fact that Tarrant was a contributor to both India and to Australia uh, in the formation of Indo-Australian cricket. He was a true pioneer.
0: And uh, would this be uh, one of your most interesting books to write or uh, your most interesting book to write uh, is still to come?
1: Um, well, as a senior card holder, Sharon they haven't quite got your level of energy still. I hope I have. But um, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar is my favourite. I believed in the need for that book at that time um, because of the indifference being shown to Indo-Australian cricket. I wanted, in a small way, to attend to that. And I hope that's what the book achieved. And... Um, and, of course, Tarrant was manager in 35-36. And uh, I hope this book on, on Tarrant, um, the um, you know, cricket's uh, forgotten uh, pioneer, will sit nicely with Cricket Beyond the Bazaar.
0: And when is it out?
1: Um, it should be out in October. And I'm hoping, of course, uh, depending on what this, this dreadful virus does, that the Indian team will be in Australia, hopefully. Um, and uh, that they... What somebody there, Harsha um, Bogley has very kindly agreed to write the foreword to the book, and it would be nice to be able to celebrate it uh, during a Border Gavaskar series.
0: And final question to you, Mike: uh, Where do you see cricket and the media associated with cricket heading?
1: Um, it's going to change dramatically yet again, I think. Um, There's not going to be the amount of touring. Um, We're seeing the technology being employed around the world through uh, this extraordinary period we're living through at the moment. I think a lot of those techniques are going to be re-employed on a permanent basis. Um, I I hope that that there's there's still enough money in the newspaper industry in India, Australia and England, uh, so that we continue to get good cricket writing um, in newspapers as well as online. I mean, there's some magnificent writing and some magnificent writing. And in fact, much of it's been done in India in recent years, over the last, what, 15, 20 years. Um, some of the best young writers has been in India. So there's still got to be, there got to be the vehicle for good writing. So hopefully it continues. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's... Um, there's enough opportunities there and that, we, you know, that we're not um, just trapped in front of screens forever and a day. Let's hope um, you know, that there are happier, more productive days ahead for the game. Uh, let's make sure that the pure game prospers. Uh, let's get a grip on this ridiculous amount of short-form cricket that we're playing, uh, which achieves very, very little in the long term. Uh, Let's respect where the game has come from. Let's respect its history, its traditions. Uh, I think we saw during the crisis in Cape Town um, that the the world was shocked by a violation of the absolute, uh, the ethos of the game. We need to preserve that. And if we can preserve that and those standards um, and that the current players can educate the youngsters in the the joy of the traditional game, well, I think it will prosper. And let's hope it does, Chandrish.
0: Thanks a lot, Mike. It was a privilege, honour, and uh, and a pleasure to speak to you about the good old days. Uh, Nothing gets better than nostalgia in these times of uh, negativity all around us. Thanks a lot for giving time to chat with me. And I hope to read your book uh, when it comes out later this year.
1: Yes, well, hopefully, I'll make sure you get one. And um, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. It's been, a, been a, very, uh, a very pleasant chat. All the best Thanks. to you.
0: Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks a lot.